John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, or let it be so. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Father, we humbly ask for the grace of God and the help and power of your Holy Spirit as we begin a new book through the Word of God as we study it and that your spirit would write your will onto the fleshly tablet of our hearts, even this day, from this portion of your word. Please, Lord, we ask as always now, speak through what you've already spoken by your spirit in the written word, and we ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, our God is certainly a God of many things, but one thing indeed God is, is that he is a God of revelation. And as his servants, he graciously at times shows us things that are both important and helpful for us to know. And there are many reasons why God reveals things to us, but one of the many reasons for revelation is that we might live accordingly to what God shows us in response to what he shows us, and also that we might then take what God shows us and lets us see or know, and that we may then share those things with others that God has shown to us. And this is what we see happening in our opening verses here in the book of Revelation. John indicates very clearly that he is sharing firsthand testimony of what God has shown him, of what God has revealed to him. The Holy Spirit's pen, we might say, that was used in recording this, one of the 66 books of the entire library of the Word of God. Different human instruments are those who record what God's Spirit is saying, and really the human instrument, whether it's John or Peter or Paul or Isaiah or Jeremiah, no matter who it is, they are just the human pen, if you would, that God by His Spirit was directing to record the things that He was speaking in His Word. And in this situation, the human author, that's the pen of the Spirit, is the aged apostle John. At this point in history, John is somewhere around 100 years old, and this is John the apostle, one of the original 12, which Jesus selected to partner with him in his ministry. The book of Revelation was written down, we know, somewhere around 95 to 96 A.D., historically, and we know that it was during the historical time period that the ruler Domitian was reigning in Rome. And John was banished to the Isle of Patmos as a servant of the Lord, and Patmos was a colonized prison island. We know that because verse 9, just one short of where we stop from reading, John declares, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that was called Patmos, and the reason why he was put there for his faithfulness, look to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what is in this imprisoned condition there in a difficult time in his life that John is put there, he's suffering, no doubt he's wondering, as we'll talk about next time, why, God, this is the reward I get for serving you? 
And it's there that God gives him this revelation by the Spirit, which gives us wonderful things that all of us are able to then understand. The book of Revelation, you might say, I think fairly, is kind of a book of culmination. It's a book of culmination in that the word culmination speaks of the highest point of development after a period of time. And the book of Revelation is a book of culmination because everything that began in Genesis with creation, with the origin of mankind and the origin of all things, continues to run its course through the scope of human history, through different events that happen all throughout the Word of God and the other 65 books of Scripture, all of which pertain to God's total plan of redemption and saving mankind. And those things unfold and happen starting in creation all the way through, but now they all finally conclude and end here as shown to us in the book of Revelation. So those things that began in Genesis, and really even for that matter prior to Genesis that were in God's heart as the God of all eternity, they carry themselves through all the other 65 books, and they now culminate here in the book of Revelation. And therefore, the whole rest of the Bible really is quite vital to understanding the book of Revelation. A good working knowledge of the other 65 books of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, is really the best guide to interpretation for the book of Revelation. Lots of commentaries exist, different perspectives are out there, but the best commentary you can find to interpret accurately the book of Revelation is Genesis all the way through to Jude. That's the best commentary because it gives us really the clearest ability to understand this final book. 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and those who do great research more than myself, indicate 285 Old Testament citations exist in those 404 verses. And over, over 500 different allusions to things from the Old Testament, all found within the book of Revelation, not to mention multitudes of different New Testament truths become further clarified here as well. So this last biblical book gives us really the answers to where everything is headed and to where everyone is going ultimately in God's word. It's like many biblical truths surface and arise and surface and arise all throughout the other prior books. End times events begin to be mentioned. Things start to be described about end time events. And they all begin to show up and surface in the other 65 books. And now they kind of culminate in the fullest sense in the book of Revelation. If I could illustrate, it's kind of like there are many different trains departing from various stations carrying little bits of information and spiritual truth. That'd be like the other 65 books of the Bible. All these different trains carrying different bits of truth, something about the Antichrist here, something about the rapture there, things about coming events and the return of the Lord here and there, and they surface like trains departing in all these other books of the Bible, and then it's almost like they now eventually arrive and they unload fully here at the Grand Central Station of the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where it kind of culminates and many of those prior ideas get their fullest revelation to help us understand. So this book, really, we're going to see, folks, it truly, it really brings the rest of the Bible into much clearer focus. Because things that we learn in other places are more fully expanded and developed in a fuller sense as they culminate here in this final book. Look with me back in verse 1. The book opens simply by saying to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That Greek term there, revelation, apocalypsis, where obviously we get our English word apocalypse, which is just a term that speaks of an unveiling. It refers to uncovering things or revealing things so that you can see something that you could not prior, so that you could understand something that was unknown before. If we could illustrate again, the best way would be like pulling a sheet off of a stone monument in a park so that then you can see what was there, but you just didn't see it before. Or pulling a sheet off of a beautiful sculpture and allowing you to then know and understand what that sculpture is in a way that you couldn't see it before. In the book of Revelation, the 
apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us here, basically we have the Holy Spirit pulling back the veil from the temporal dimension and allowing us to see into the eternal, allowing us to see things of the spiritual realm as the Holy Spirit kind of unveils and reveals these things so that we can understand things that an eternal God is fully aware of, but we don't see in the temporal realm. And so God gives us a glimpse. He kind of gives an unveiling. He pulls back. But I want you to please notice, this is crucial to the beginning of this book, the primary subject of this revelation or unveiling. Look at it again there in verse 1. It's the revelation of, or we might say about, Jesus Christ. That's what the revelation is about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the primary theme he is the central focus, supposed to be anyway, of this book. Through this book, it is highly prophetic, meaning it does predict much of what is coming and end times. It reveals, we're going to see, a lot of things. It reveals a lot about God's throne. It reveals to us things about the rapture and removal of the church. It describes the tribulation, the seven-year period of God's wrath. It tells us things about the Antichrist, this one-world ruler and a one-world economy and, and these things that will happen, a one-world government. It tells us lots of things uh, about the judgment of God that's coming upon the world. It tells us a lot about the kingdom age. But the thing to realize, the primary intention is that the Holy Spirit wants us to have a greater revelation of Jesus Christ as the glorified king, and to understand and see more about Jesus as Savior and Lord in relation to all those other things. That we're more excited about Jesus Christ than, who's the Antichrist? Oh, who's the Antichrist? Some Christians are so, who's the Antichrist? They're so excited chasing around the Antichrist. Look, if you're a Christian, you're not going to be here anyway. I don't care who it is, ultimately. If I'm here and I find out, that's a problem. I want the seat from the mezzanine <laughs> at that point in time. So the heart of God is that we might understand and see more of Jesus. This is the revelation of the subject of the glorified Jesus. In chapters 1 through 3, we see Jesus as the exalted priest ministering among his church. Chapters 4 and 5. We see Jesus pictured as the glorified lamb reigning on heaven's throne, receiving worship in the eternal dimension. Chapters 6 through 18, which describes the time of the tribulation, we'll see Jesus there pictured as the righteous judge of all the earth, executing justice and holy wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Chapters 19 and 20, we see Jesus pictured as the glorified king as he's returning back to this earth to establish his throne and to reign in power during the time of the kingdom age. And then chapters 21 and 22, we'll see Jesus as the bridegroom, together celebrating with his bride, you and I, in eternity. So the heart intention of learning the book of Revelation is not so that we can just increase as Christians and feel like we know way more about eschatology than the other Christians around us, and wow, I know this, and I know that about end times things, and I'm right, and you're wrong, but God's heart is that we might come into a greater revelation of who Jesus is in relation to all those other things, that he is the central focus, and that at the end of the book of Revelation, we be more inspired to serve Jesus as our Savior, and as our glorified coming King on a much, much deeper level. So he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1 going on, he says, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So notice, this revelation was to show the Lord's servants things which are coming, things which must Happen. Notice he says there are things which must shortly take place. Now, you might scratch your head right away and say, wait a minute, that sounds like something that should be happening pretty soon. John wrote that back in the 90s of A.D., yet much of what's in this book we're still awaiting after 200,000, or excuse me, 2,000 years have passed. Well, let me say two things in regards to that. First of all, I'm actually going to say three things in regards to that. I'm contradicting myself. First of all, the Lord always wants his people to live in a sense of constant expectancy of his return. 
Because by living in a sense of expectancy of the imminent, which means any moment, return of the Lord, we live the way we're supposed to live as God's people on this earth. Secondarily, remember that unlike us, God dwells outside of the time realm, in an eternal dimension where we live in a temporal realm with a time continuum. And so therefore, unlike us who measure everything in days and months and years because we're in a time realm continuum, with God, he's in an eternal dimension. He's in a timeless eternal dimension. He is, we're going to see, the beginning and the end. So to God, everything is present all the time. Our past, present. Our current, present. Our future, present, because he's the eternal God. And this is where the difficulty comes for us because God's measurement of time is completely different than my measurement of time and your measurement of time, and that's why we're always struggling with timing and time and what God's doing on the earth and in our lives personally, right? Peter describes this in 2 Peter 3. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness with our logical minds. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So again, Lord, where have you been? It's been 2,000 years. He says, really? It's only been two days to me. Lord, what has taken so long? I don't understand. Lord, it's been weeks. It's been months. And, and, and again, and that's where we struggle. Because God's dwelling in the constant present. We're dwelling day by day, hour by hour, week by week. And then we wrestle with that. And we struggle. So again, we must always understand there is always going to be that disconnect that we wrestle with. Now, one thing that is somewhat, I believe, helpful is a little closer look at the language used here also helps to some degree because when he talks about, he says, things which must shortly take place, the term there used in the original Greek is, is tachos, where we get our English word today, tachometer, right? And, and the tachometer is what measures the RPMs in your car, revolutions per minute. It tells how fast you're moving. And so perhaps, as God says, and tachos, these things much come to pass, and tachos, in, in measuring speed, perhaps it's an indication not just how soon of a time frame the events would come to pass after John wrote them, as much as perhaps God was indicating the rapidness of execution that the events will happen in once they get moving and they begin. And so rather than meaning, why isn't this happening right now, quicker than I would prefer, that what God is indicating is once the engine of the last day's event starts unfolding, it will rapidly pick up speed like a tachometer as your vehicle goes faster and faster, and it will rapidly, the execution of those events described here in the book of Revelation, will move forward in such quick culmination as described that once God sets it in the motion, it will happen so fast it will be too late to change your mind. Because such quick, fast succession of things will be happening so quickly, and that God, in a sense, perhaps is even cautioning, listen, once I set those things into motion, those things that you see are going to happen so fast, so quickly, so abruptly, and that's why God would say, be prepared, be ready, don't delay that caution that we all need regarding the end times and the return of our Lord. And notice how this revelation was really brought forth. Verse 1 tells us, he sent, it says, and signified it, that is the revelation, by his angel to his servant John. So notice it came from heaven's throne, was sent by God's angel, John tells us, given to him as the Lord's servant here on this earth. Now, angels are created supernatural beings from the eternal dimension together with the eternal God, and they're designed and created, angels are, to assist God's plan and to help with God's purposes, both in heaven and on earth. And we shall see angels show up in the book of Revelation some 70 times. 
playing a very significant role in the things that we see described. We will find angels delivering messages. We'll see angels worshiping at the throne of God. We'll see them executing some of God's judgment and punishments, fulfilling some of his plans. We'll see angels fighting the devil himself. We'll see an angel preaching the gospel flying around during the tribulation, proclaiming the everlasting gospel, and we'll see angels assisting saints. Hebrews 1 tells us this regarding angels, that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And so here we see an angel doing that very thing, delivering this revelation from God's throne to an earthly servant, John, letting him see and understand these things. And notice the way it was delivered. He says, God sent it, verse 1, and look at that word, and signified it. God sent it and signified it. The word signified speaks of how it was sent through signs, symbols, that there was a, a symbolic thing that was attached to these revelations, that is, ideas expressed in signs, pictures that represent things, symbols that represent particular things. And we will see that very clearly as we go through the book of Revelation. We'll find John speaking in symbolic language, trying to describe the best he can things that he was seeing, things that were being revealed to him, trying to put word pictures together with a limited human mind. Imagine using picturesque language the best he can, trying to describe what he was actually seeing of the things in the eternal dimension and future events we'll see John receives over 40 different spiritual visions in the midst of this overall revelation. About 20 times, John will bounce back and forth from a scene in heaven to a scene on earth, to a scene in heaven to a scene on earth. 20 different times, it will go back and forth. Lots of speech we'll notice throughout this book filled with metaphors and analogies. You'll constantly see terms as and like. Many, many times as John's trying to describe what he was seeing, he would say, it was like, and then I'll use some language to try and describe things. And again, understand, he's living in an ancient culture, and yet he's seeing things in future ways in a time period he's never lived in with developments, modern technology. I mean, John wasn't seeing planes flying around yet or bombs or missiles, and he's trying to describe it. I don't know. It kind of looked like, and it was as, and he's using metaphors. And he's using the best he can with human language to try and convey what he's seeing. We'll see the usage of various numbers. A prime example we'll see constantly is the number seven, which appears over 50 times itself, the number seven. Over 50 times in this revelation, we'll see seven churches. We'll see seven stars. We'll see seven lampstands, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals. And we'll see numbers used in a way as well, symbolically, to represent things. Now, many of the signs and symbols, as I said earlier, are defined right within the book themselves. Other signs and symbols that we get at times become clear as we simply utilize other passages of Scripture not Bob Smith's great revelation commentary, but using the scripture as the commentary, hey, what does that signify there? What's being conveyed there metaphorically or as an illusion by utilizing the word of God? We can understand most clearly many times what's being described and other signs and symbols are gonna appear that I'm gonna say, I have no clue and we're just not sure and we can't be dogmatic about those things, but oftentimes those that we can't be dogmatic or unclear of, they're usually not that crucial to the understanding that's needed anyway. We can just simply speculate to a degree. Notice, if you would, however, how John, this deeply spiritual man, used mightily of God, writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He receives this revelation, but how does he refer to himself as the great prophetic visionary? who received powerful revelations, and what does he call himself? He calls himself his servant, John. I love that. Here, this apostle that receives incredible apocalyptic unveiling and revelation of things, he calls himself his servant, John. Let me tell you, folks, that's what God is searching for. 
servants, to show things to, to work through. I love the prophet Amos from the Old Testament. Amos was just a farmer. In fact, he actually was a fig picker. He picked figs. And here's this guy, he's a fig picker, he's a farmer, and God calls him to go out and to start harvesting spiritual fruit as a part of his ministry. And it tells us of Amos in chapter 3, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret, the idea of his plan, to his servants, the prophets. Just servants. How wonderful. That's what God's looking for to show things through, to work through. Just servants. You know, I was speaking somewhere recently where I was filling in to, to guest speak, and uh, before the services were getting ready to start it, I, I said to the assistant pastor who was kind of, you know, gu- guiding my, my way there, Phil, I said, is there somewhere I can use a restroom before we, before we get started? And, and he said to me, well, yeah, there's a, there's a general restroom out here in the lobby, but the pastor's bathroom, if you go down that door and around the hall and just, and, and, and I, I can't help myself sometimes, and I said, I think I can pee in any toilet. <laughs> and forgive me if that seemed facetious, but to me, I just, the whole mindset behind that. I just, do you need to propose to me there's a pastor's restroom? I just, a restroom's a restroom. Well, why do I need a special restroom to relieve myself before the service starts? <laughs> just, just, but again, that's the mindset that's so often. We, we allow ourselves as human beings that caught up, but you know what God's looking for? Servants. When we read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was a humble servant. He just was going around serving people in his humanity and helping people. And again, John says, I'm just his servant. That's all I am. And notice as God's servant, what did he do? He just faithfully delivered the message that he received. Verse 2, he says, John, his servant, who bore witness to the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Notice, John admits these were not his insights, and these weren't even his ideas. He said, truth be told, I'm just recording what was shown me. I'm just bearing witness, he says, to the word of God, and I'm just giving testimony to what things I've seen and experienced of Jesus. John was seeing these things regarding spiritual vision from God who was revealing them to him just as a reliable servant to just safely deliver the food to the table and to record these things down. And he says, that's all I was doing as a servant. And look, you and I may not receive revelation like John did in this book, but really our ministry, all of us as God's people, as as his servants, is really the same. Our ministry is the same as right there what John says in verse 2. Our ministry is to bear witness faithfully to the word of God. And that as you learn God's word and you hear God's word, that you as a faithful witness just share God's word with other people. And that we would just do the best we humbly can to give testimony of Jesus Christ to what things we see and learn of Jesus Christ. And just tell other people about our own experience with Jesus He says, verse 3, going on, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now take notice of this, verse 3. Notice there's a built-in blessing promised by God in this book, the book of Revelation. Right there in verse 3, there's a built-in blessing, a threefold blessing attached to to what we do in relation to this book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Look at it, verse 3. He says, blessed is he, first of all, who reads. Notice who he who reads. Singular, the person, the individual who reads this prophetic book of Revelation. So personally reading the book of Revelation, if you read it on your own, or, or the privilege that I have to get to publicly read the book of Revelation, so I'm going to get an extra blessing on that. Reading the book on your own, reading the book out loud, reading the book of Revelation, he says, there's a blessing. Blessed is he who reads, who who reads these things, and secondarily, those who hear the words of this prophecy. So in the hearing of the book of Revelation, this prophetic book, those choosing to come and to sit in church and to worship the Lord and hear this book, God says, there's a blessing attached to that. 
There's going to be a blessing poured out in connection to that, as well as he then thirdly says in verse 3, blessed also are those who keep the things written in it for the time is coming near. So he describes there each one's responsiveness to what's here. So there's a blessing in reading it, there's a blessing in hearing it, and he says there's also a blessing if you take to heart what's being said within it and you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to you is this part of his church and to actually say, I'm going to respond to those things that I'm learning here in preparedness and readiness and in living differently and living in connection and, and whatever personal messages I hear God saying to me in the midst of reading and hearing this book of Revelation, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to live it out. I'm, whatever God's saying to me, I'm going to walk those things out. And God says, there's a blessing attached to that proper responsiveness to this book. It aligns with the Old Testament principle from Joshua 1.8, where there God says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. That's referring to the first five books of the Bible. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. How interesting. You know, the, the five books from the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and then, oh man, Leviticus. Oh, oh man, Leviticus. Then Numbers and Deuteronomy, and, and sometimes we, we just we shy away from it. Can I just read the Psalms? They're syrupy sweet Psalms. And Proverbs, they're kind of catchy. God says those first five books of the Bible, if you read them and, and you take heed to what they say, and God says there's a blessing attached to that. And then the very last book of the Bible, oh, that's too complicated. That's too controversial. People have different end times views. We're not going to teach that in our church. God says, no, 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 exact opposite. God says those who read it and hear it and respond to it, there's, there's a blessing attached to that. And I don't know about you, when I read that reality there, to me, that built-in blessing described in verse 3 just further indicates to me the book of Revelation is not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be understood. Why would God say to us, I will bless those who read it, who hear it, and who respond to it, if you couldn't understand it? <laughs> That'd be kind of mean, wouldn't it? God putting it in there, well, they, they could be blessed if they could figure this out. <laughs> I mean, God's not like that in his nature. It just God wants the book of Revelation to be read, to be understood. And, you know, let us believe God's promise there in verse 3, and let's expectantly look for God's gracious blessing upon our lives as individuals, as a congregation, as we read and hear and respond to the book of Revelation. God said it, let's trust him to do it. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come. So this shows the intended recipients of the book. The original recipients when recorded were seven literal churches, the seven churches which are in Asia, that's the area of Asia Minor in that day, which is modern day Turkey actually. And we'll see, as we get into chapters 2 and 3 more in depth, that Jesus is writing uh, seven specific letters there to seven different local congregations. Certainly there were more, but seven he selected, and he sent personal letters to each of those seven churches, giving praise to them for what they were doing well as a church, and also at the same time identifying things that they were not doing well that he wasn't pleased with. So he was giving words of commendation, and he instructs each church, and he also identifies things that need to be changed and corrected within the congregation as well, and we'll see that in chapters 2 and 3. And as he addresses here this opening section, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, verse 5, and from, third time from, Jesus Christ. So notice he pronounces a blessing asking for God's divine favor, grace, and for God's heavenly peace or tranquility and rest for our souls. And notice this divine blessing of grace and peace has a source. Again, a threefold source that this blessing of grace and peace would come from, and no doubt inferring here the Trinity, that our one God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Notice we see, as I read there in verse 4 and 5, the word from, I have it circled three times, grace and peace from 
him who was and is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, third time, and from, verse 5, Jesus Christ. So there is a threefold source of this blessing from three persons. The first person clearly there in verse 4 is a reference to God the Father, being described there as the eternal God, the one who was and is and is to come. He is the one who is, that is presently existent right now. He's the ever-present God, always at work. He is the I am. He is always at work and is right now. He is the God who was, which means he's always been in existence forever. He's the eternal God. He always is at work. He always was at work. He always has existed in the beginning. God. In the beginning, God. He was our, he's the self-existent, eternally existent God. And he also is the eternal God, is the God who is thirdly to come. That is, he will be there in the days ahead as the everlasting father. So God has always been. God is being present and involved in our lives right now. And when we get to anything down the road, God will be there in the future. So he says, this divine blessing of grace and peace, it comes from the father as the eternal one. The second personage that's described there as a source from where grace and peace come from this triplet, he says in verse 4, and from, secondly, the seven spirits who are before his throne. I say, wait a minute, that sounds kind of confusing and sketchy there, from the seven spirits before God's throne, coming from God's throne. Well, again, the number seven, as we'll see, is a number to represent completeness or totality. And that's very important to understand. I believe personally that this becomes here an illusion in a picturesque form of the completeness of the ministry of God's spirit coming from God's throne, a ministry of the totality of the fullness of the spirit's ministry. Why do I say that? Well, for one example, Isaiah chapter 11, we have there a sevenfold description, sevenfold description of God's spirit there in the Old Testament to apply the many works of the Spirit. We read there in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from a stem of Jesse, a branch that shall grow out of his roots. Notice a branch stemming out of something that looked like it wasn't once there. I believe the branch is Jesus. And then it says this, and the Spirit of the Lord, there's one description, shall rest upon him, upon Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. A sevenfold description of the fullness of the spirit of God's ministry. We see another similar illusion of seven there in Zechariah 4, where we have that beautiful statement, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So I believe here, following the context that this is just an image of the fullness of the totality of the Spirit's ministry and really nothing more than that of just a picturesque description. And then, of course, the third personage from where this blessing of grace and peace comes from, we come now, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So from the Father is the eternal God, from the Spirit of God, and now also from God the Son, from Jesus Christ. Christ himself. Through encountering Jesus, we encounter peace with God. We encounter peace from God or the peace of God. And then John just becomes led to speak and reveal many wonderful things about Jesus as he goes on in these verses. He starts to describe the wonderful things about Jesus from Jesus Christ. The first thing he calls him is the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He's going to talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in these verses. Jesus, the faithful witness. Faithful witness of what? He is the faithful witness of God. He is the reliable, trustworthy, credible witness of who God was. Jesus was God in human flesh dwelling among us, faithfully revealing to us as a witness in his person who God actually is. He is the true representation of God. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
So through Jesus, God faithfully gave firsthand witness of himself in the clearest way possible. That's why Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the faithful witness of God himself. Secondly, he says that Jesus is the firstborn, verse 5, from the dead. The word firstborn speaks of the place of privilege and honor. It means first in order, in the sense of honor. Not necessarily sequence, but of honor. And among those who've come back to life from the realm of the dead, who have raised back to life from the dead, Jesus, even in his humanity, holds the place of highest honor because he is the first in an order of resurrections that is being raised back from out among the realm of the dead. He is the first of an order because Jesus, as a man died, came back to life, but to never die again. See, when you study Old and New Testament, you see God raise people from the dead in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But guess what? All those people who got raised back from the dead, they died again. That's a real bummer. Imagine that. Oh, wow. So cool. You got to be raised from the dead. No, I got to die twice. Jesus, which makes him the firstborn, highest in order of being raised back from the dead, is because Jesus displays and represents the forward captain of our salvation as a new spiritual order, a man who was raised from the dead to never die again, to receive a glorified eternal body to which he now dwells in to never die again and live forever. And it's through our union with Jesus, that's how we have that same promise, that we will die once but to receive a glorified eternal body, to never experience the death process again, to live immortally, worshiping around the throne of God, as we'll see in chapters 4 and 5. He also describes Jesus in verse 5 as the ruler over the kings of the earth. That is, there's no earthly authority or power or throne, no one who's ruling on this earth who can ever overrule the throne of King Jesus. And that's a great consolation to know that. That though we see earthly rulers now and get frustrated and bothered to know that there is an ultimate ruler who can override any human ruler at any time he needs to, to keep things in orchestration with the ultimate eternal plan of God. Jesus, the Prince of Peace and ruler of all, will one day interrupt human history and he will come back and dethrone every human ruler, even you might say the most powerful world ruler one day as we'll see, and will put them down and take his rightful rule. And so we recognize that, hey, there's ultimately a throne that is in control on a greater degree than any earthly thing that's happening. We also see what our Lord has done for us, not just who he is. John says the end of verse 5 of Jesus, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So being directed by his amazing love for you and I, though we are guilty sinners... Though we've all rebelled against God in our lives, Jesus loved us in our worst condition. When our lives were the most filthy and disgusting they've ever been. Jesus loved us in those conditions and in his love served and suffered and sacrificed his life and death for us, bleeding out his life in order to have mercy and grace upon our lives. It says there in verse 5, I love the way it's written, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Man, just take a walk with that phrase right there for a while. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. The word wash that's used there speaks to cleanse in totality. Aren't you glad for that? Not just he got a couple stains off and mm, that mustard stain. You can kind of still see it in your shirt there. That's not how it is with your sin. And we think that sometimes. Well, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but there must, there's kind of probably wash. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Completely washed, completely cleansed. The extent of complete removal of all of your filth, all of my guilt, all of the dirt. And look, we all know, do we not, the errors and the failures of our own lives, the stains, the guilt we feel for things we've done or said or that, that, that we maybe and no one else but us know. 
but to recognize this morning the great extent of Jesus' love that he was willing to suffer and die to cleanse you from that, to wash it out of your life, to completely remove it, to give you a clean state and a righteous standing, to spare you and make you ready to take away that guilt. But the mercy and grace still goes onward because look what he says. He didn't just wash us from our sins in his own blood. He's made us, verse 6, kings and priests to his God and Father. That speaks of the incredible power of Jesus to bring transformation to our lives as guilty sinners. Think about the transformation, the grace and mercy of Jesus brings to take us from lowly sinners and give us quite an exalted position. I mean, look what he describes there. Our spiritual position when we're united with Christ and we've been forgiven, he says he's made us priests and kings, making us part of a spiritual priesthood. Like the Old Testament priests, remember? He's made us a part of a spiritual priesthood. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, you also now are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. He's made us now spiritual priests, if you would, giving us this high honorable position. And he says in the same way the priests would offer sacrifices, they'd bring their sacrifices, we offer spiritual sacrifices. And some of us who are animal lovers, it makes you very happy. My wife's an animal lover. She says, I don't know what I would have done in the Old Testament. I couldn't have bring the little animals. Don't worry, honey. I was the head of the home. I would have took care of it for you. We would have made sure we were forgiven. But how wonderful. Now we offer spiritual sacrifices. The fruit of our lips, giving praise to his name. The sacrifice of laying down our own will, the sacrifice of offering our body as a living sacrifice and saying, Lord, my life's not mine. Here it is, Lord. Whatever you want to do with it, I offer my life to you as a living sacrifice. We offer spiritual sacrifices in worship and rendering such to give honor to him. And he says, also, one day we shall, like kings, also rule together with him, reign with him. Revelation 20 describes how we have this blessed privilege of believers. When we return with Jesus and he sets up his kingdom, it says, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. Now, I can't help but to say, just contemplate how much mercy and grace has truly come from Jesus and from the throne of God to consider right there in those verses how far he's taken us, all of us, folks, to change our condition. He has taken us from being dirty, filthy, corrupt, rebellious sinners who were slaves and he's made us priests and kings? Whoa. That's pretty phenomenal. You want to talk about an upgrade? Oh, I've never gotten a promotion. That's not true. You got one of the most incredible promotions ever. When you got saved, you got spared from judgment, and you got elevated to this incredible spiritual privilege. That's why, no doubt, the only right response is what? Worship. That's why John couldn't help but to say to him, verse 6, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's like spontaneous worship. And look, that should be the spontaneous worship. When you realize where you were and what Jesus has done, that should give you a spontaneity of worship. John says, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, it's almost as if John here, I think, as he declares how King Jesus as ruler is going to one day overthrow rebellion, I sense in verse 7, John, much like you and I, he's thinking, I just got to give him a little preview of coming attractions. I mean, he's going to talk so much about this in the book, but it's almost like he can't wait to get to the second coming of the Lord. And again, I believe verse 7 is not describing the rapture of the church, but the second coming of the Lord when he comes because of the language that's described, and we'll differentiate between the two. But it says there, he is coming with the clouds, that is the clouds of heaven, all of his angelic beings, with you and I as his saints in our glorified bodies. We'll see it in Revelation 19 and 20. And look what he says, every eye will see him. Every eye. That is, every eye of the soul still upon this earth after the rapture of the church 
After the tribulation, every eye will see Jesus coming back in power and great glory as he returns. Matthew 24 says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. John even references there even those who pierced him. No doubt referring to the Jewish people as well will be grieving, recognizing they miss their Messiah as he comes back in great power and glory. Zechariah 12.10, again, describes that same thing, how God will pour out his spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they will look on me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve as one grieves for a firstborn. That is, as Jesus comes back in great power, those left on this earth will be in such great shock, they will begin to mourn and grieve because of their rejection of Jesus and realize, oh my goodness, what have we done? We mocked all those Christians. We stubbornly refused to believe, and now they see the glorified real king coming back as he interrupts human history. And he shuts everybody down. And he allows everybody to see clearly who he is. Look, that's why he says, behold, pay attention. He is coming. The idea is be alert, be aware, believer, be aware, unbeliever, get prepared. Jesus always has the last word. That's why he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He always has the first word and the last word. The beginning and the end, says the Lord. And then notice he takes deity to himself, just like the Father above, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Notice Jesus is the beginning and the end. Please note, he doesn't say he knows the beginning and he knows the end. He does. He says he is the beginning and he is the end. To me, that's incredible to think about. Everything stems from Jesus. Everything originates from Jesus. All things have their source in Jesus. The only way anything begins is by Jesus bringing it to pass. The only way anything can start is if Jesus starts it. So if Jesus wants something to begin, Jesus alone can begin it and bring it to pass. And the only way, listen, the only way anything can come to an end is if Jesus brings it to an end. Everything culminates in Jesus. Everything should end at Jesus. And if we've reached any other conclusion at the end than Jesus, we reach the wrong conclusion. The only one who can bring an end to all that's happening in humanity and bring things to become right that have been so wrong is Jesus. But the wonderful thing is he's the almighty one and he has the power to do it. No matter what it looks like, Jesus can ultimately bring a good end because he is the Almighty One. Let's stand together and let's pray.